Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Katharina Nachbar. This is a special episode because I'm interviewing our regular podcast host, Joel Santu, who just got back from Hong Kong. We talk about his impression of what the city is like these days, the underlying factors that are driving the current protest movement and what it has morphed into, growing polarization in Hong Kong, and what we should expect as the People's Republic of China celebrates its 70th anniversary on October 1st. When he doesn't host this podcast, Joel is a project manager at the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin, where he works on questions related to the emerging global order. He grew up in Hong Kong and closely follows what is going on in the city right now. Thanks for joining on the Global Futures Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's interesting to be on this side of the table. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a special episode because normally you are the one who's asking questions, but today you are on the other side. Yeah, so take it easy. <laughs> we'll do. Maybe. We'll see. So I want to jump right in. Um, we are talking today about the situation in Hong Kong because you just came back actually from Hong Kong um, yesterday, a couple of days ago. And yeah, tell us, what's your impression? Uh, what's the city like these days? Yeah, so just a, just a disclaimer, uh, this is, I say, my city. I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, I just got back two days ago. Um, and a lot of what um, I'm happy to share are impressions, observations, conversations I've had with locals, with people I know there, um, yeah, from different sectors. I'm obviously not going to name names. Um, but the impression I've had so far is it's very different from the Hong Kong I grew up in. Um, and even the Hong Kong that I traveled to uh, a few years ago, in the sense that there is a sense of tension in the air because of the recent protest movements that uh, that's put Hong Kong in the spotlight around the world, um, for better or worse. And um, there are things that I have had to think about, which I never had to think about in the past, like not to wear a black colored T-shirt, because that is, you know, the color associated with the um, pro-democracy movement and to you know use public transport but uh, before a certain hour because you never know when you know uh, things can you know kick off between protesters and, and riot police and so on and so forth and there's also a sense of gloom in the air when you talk to people it's you know a lot of people that I spoke to they 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 appreciate um, what the protesters are um, fighting for, if you will, but they don't necessarily appreciate the way things have, you know, played out and the level of violence that has engulfed the city. And literally watching the city you grew up in and go up in flames every weekend, um, as one taxi driver put it uh, in Cantonese, he says, you know, um, which means my heart hurts. Uh, it's a heartache to see what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. So that might be a good segue into um, circling back to what started this protest movement that you just described. Just bring it back um, for our listeners. Um, these protests have been going on for a couple of weeks, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what they what uh, sparked them in, in the beginning and, and what they have morphed into ever since? Yeah, sure. So um, it's going on the 16th week. So if we look back, that's June 2019 that kicked off this recent um Uh, protest. It kicked off because uh, the Hong Kong government wanted to introduce an extradition bill, which basically allows um, the Hong Kong government to arrest uh, anyone living in Hong Kong or transiting through Hong Kong to be then sent to mainland China to be persecuted for crimes. Uh, and that, you know, was um, Hong Kong people had a massive pushback saying, no, this is, you know, this infringes on our democratic rights. Um, you can basically arrest anyone that the government deems fit and send them to, to China. 
and uh, Chinese law is different from Hong Kong law. We have a basic constitution which allows, you know, uh, independent judiciary uh, rule uh, of law. And people said in China that doesn't really exist. It's ruled by law. So whatever the uh, PRC, the People's Republic of China, the government there, or the security apparatus thinks makes sense to them, applies. And yeah, that went on for weeks. And then ultimately, the uh, the government in Hong Kong said, okay, after, you know, being put under a lot of stress, they said, okay, we withdraw the bill, the bill is dead now, it's been taken off the table. But in the meantime, in the last 16 weeks, a lot of things have happened, including um, thousands of people being arrested, uh, some as young as, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, the police have been uh, accused of using excessive force, so police brutality has been there. There's been a lot of damage caused in the city, and now the, the protesters, you know, have a, a list of, you know, five demands that they want to be, uh, you know, fully addressed before uh, I think things will settle. And whether these things happen is, you know, the jury's out on that. And um, can you say a little bit about what the demands are? So, as you said, the bill is off the table, but ever since we've only ever seen the, the, the tension rise, you know, violence escalate. And so the pictures that are going around the world are obviously ones of, you know, tear gas, protesters being attacked by police um, wearing tear masks and masks. So what's the demands now? What are they fighting for? Yeah, good question. I mean, if you look at pictures around the globe, um, you'll see protesters often stick their hand up in the air with five fingers out, right? And there's a reason why they have the five fingers. They have five demands. And yeah, one of them was to withdraw the extradition bill. Um, the second one was for Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, um, to step down which hasn't happened, and I doubt it will happen, even though maybe she wants to, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, they want an inquiry into uh, excessive violence by the police, so police brutality, that's a third. The fourth is um, the release of everyone who's been arrested, right? Um, and the fifth one, which underpins all of this, is greater democratic freedoms. Um, and one thing you know that includes is... Uh, universal suffrage, so one person, one vote for uh, the territories, Hong Kong's um, leader, political leader. Um, and these are the key five demands. So that might bring us to the role that China plays in this whole situation. Um, we are speaking today um, and tomorrow, October 1st, marks the day where the People's Republic of China is celebrating 70 years of its existence. So can you tell us a little bit about what the role of China is, what the historical context is that we're looking at, and why um, China is such a key player in all of this? Sure. So you're right. China's going to celebrate the, celebrate the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic uh, of China. They're definitely going to put on a massive, if not the most, uh, you know, biggest uh, strength and show of, of power in the country. You know, there's military parades, there's going to be fighter jets and bombers and tanks and all that shebang and fireworks and a lot of people out on the street. Um, they are going to try their very best to, if not successfully, suppress any news coming out of Hong Kong about, you know, people in Hong Kong protesting. And rest assured, there will be something going down in the city, for sure. Um, The, the context here is China, obviously, <laughs> like any government, wants to see a safe, secure, stable country. And in this sense, Hong Kong is included in that. What you will see uh, and what, what role China plays here is, is quite interesting. If you look at China, most people are in, you know, happy about um, 
the country becoming more and more successful and more powerful, people would say, oh, my parents in the 50s and 60s struggled to put food on the table. And now we don't have to worry about that. And the future China will be even better. And on the other hand, what you see in Hong Kong is people doing the flip. They are saying, no, we want to separate ourselves more from China in the sense of our identity. Um, we want to identify ourselves as Hong Kongers and China is having a very tough time. Um, I would say uh, integrating China, uh, Hong Kong further into China, they, 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 in the sense that they have done, they've taken certain steps, right? Um, in terms of economic integration, in terms of infrastructure integration, you know, a direct line, a train line that brings people from Hong Kong to the mainland or this great Bay Area infrastructure that now includes up to 80 million people, of which only 7 million are Hong Kongers. China is doing all this and they want to limit the level of embarrassment that Hong Kong is bringing to the mainland. That's why you see a lot of, uh, you know, censorship at the early days, even now, you know, uh, people in the mainland would be hard pressed to find um, any protest images being circulated. The security apparatus is very good at censoring that. Um, but long story short, this whole thing comes down to the Sino-British declaration that was signed between uh, the United Kingdom and China back in the 80s, um, which basically says in 1997, Hong Kong returns to China. There will be a one country, two systems policy. Uh, Hong Kong will become part of China, but has its own kind of unique rights and freedoms that are not enjoyed on the mainland. And over the years, we've seen that these unique rights that are, you know, really... Uh, unique to Hong Kong have been eroding. And this is what this whole movement in Hong Kong is about, that people saying, look, China is interpreting this whole agreement based on its own, own terms. And it's, you know, counterproductive to, to the whole agreement. Uh, and it infringes on the basic constitution that Hong Kong was guaranteed. So what I'm wondering if I see, um, so these images that have been going around the world, um, when I hear the, um, the demands that you just mentioned, um, one of them being more democracy, you know, it's, it's quite easy to pinpoint what started this. You know, you mentioned the extradition bill and you mentioned the repercussions it would have had and sort of the fear that was connected to it, that you could be extradited to the mainland. And that would mean something very different than being, for example, put on trial in Hong Kong. So that's very easy to pinpoint. But now that this is sort of off the table, the demand of more democracy, um, it's not really clear to me what that means. And maybe it means different things to different people. But, you know, speaking to people in Hong Kong of different ages, maybe generations, but especially the ones that are protesting now, what's your impression? What is it that they envision? What kind of a Hong Kong do they want when all of this is over, so to speak? That's a that's a great question. And I think that's a question that people that lingers on people's um, minds and hearts a lot. People in Hong Kong want, if you go back to the umbrella uh, movement, you know, they wanted uh, universal suffrage. They wanted to be able to elect their own leaders. They wanted to um, protect the unique democracies and freedoms and, and, and independent judiciary of Hong Kong for as long as possible, even post-2047 when Hong Kong finally becomes part of China. What you see now um, goes much deeper and it's really intertwined and mixed Remember one thing, the people who are protesting in Hong Kong on the streets, the, the, the young people um, who are aged between 17 to 22, most of them, if not all of them, were born after Hong Kong was returned to China. 
So they never grew up in colonial Hong Kong under, you know, British rule. What they have witnessed is the gradual, if not year upon year, erosion of the basic rights that were guaranteed to Hong Kong, which their their parents' generation and even the generation before enjoyed, took for granted, never had to question. What they are seeing now, these young protesters, is... um, Ask any of them, the ones I've spoken to, even business leaders are, are really wary of this. The young people don't see a future for themselves. They, they struggle to um, get good jobs after graduation. They are competing, not just amongst each other, which is very cutthroat already in Hong Kong, but they're competing against a whole labor force that is in mainland China. Uh, they're competing for housing, which is incredibly expensive in Hong Kong. It's one of the most unequal societies uh, in the world when it comes to, you know, the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and those who aren't. Um, They're competing for, um, let's say, uh, job opportunities um, that are increasingly limited in Hong Kong. Um, And all of this mixed together makes a very gloomy future. And some of them say, you know, I really want to be the breadwinner um, for my family but it's incredibly difficult. Even if I get top grades, I'm not guaranteed a job. And the result is more and more college graduates end up living at home with their parents. Um, Marriage is postponed indefinitely because they can't afford uh, housing for themselves. So they're competing on many levels. They're competing for jobs. They're competing for housing. They're competing for um, the Hong Kong dream, a lifestyle that their parents enjoyed, which they are struggling to enjoy. And for the first time in Hong Kong's uh, history, maybe there's a whole generation that will be less well off than the generation before it. And that together makes it a, a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. So looking at what the reaction has been um, around the world to what's been going on, the world has been sort of holding its breath, waiting what China is going to do, what the reaction will be. And so, you know, it seems to me that for China, this is also a very difficult situation. And, you know, they're being closely watched as to what the reaction is. Already we are looking at this as a sort of like litmus test of what might happen to other territories. And so um, obviously they will have to, you know, weigh the sort of trade-offs of different types of responses. So what do you make of the Chinese response to the protests so far? And what do you think their main options are? And what are we going to see in terms of Chinese response to to the protests as they continue and unravel? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the Chinese government has long said that this is a domestic issue. Mm-hmm that the protests that we see in Hong Kong are an internal issue for the Hong Kong government. As true as that is, uh, let's not fool anybody. Um, what happens in Hong Kong, of course, it, it, the Hong Kong government has to answer for it, but who are they answerable to? There's only one big boss, and that is Beijing. And can any chief executive in Hong Kong make any big decisions without, you know, Um, getting approval from you know Beijing I don't think so Um, so what are what are the answers uh, that China has I think ultimately it's it's uh, it's I I don't have a clear answer if I'm being honest I think it's going to be you know 
death by a thousand cuts for for Hong Kong, which is often what I hear. And unfortunately, I'm starting to believe that more and more. And by that, I mean, you know, they're just going to sit down and and wait it out and see um, how long these things can go. Um, The umbrella movement lasted, I think, 79 days. And eventually it was the Hong Kong people who just said, hey, come on, protesters, you're blocking the highways and the roads and we need to get to work and pay bills. So as much as we appreciate what you're doing, get out of the way. Uh, what's different about this time is uh, there is no central leader. Uh, the protest movements are leaderless. They're very well equipped. They're very well organized. Everything is done online using social media. So to really target uh, um, people that you can say, ah, you're the one who, who started this or you're in charge of this, this um, you know, group of people or you're in charge of that group of people, that's very hard to pin down. And that's what makes it very difficult for the Hong Kong government to deal with China definitely I think if I was a Chinese leadership I would not want to send in you know like uh, army or, or PLA that's just bad news and I think it's also in China's interest to avoid that at all costs so I'm not even going to venture down that because that's just a strange idea to imagine my city being overrun by by military people from China um, but what I think one of the biggest things I see right now is that there are two Hong Kongs. And there's a Hong Kong that people identify, you know, very strongly as I'm a Hong Konger and this is my identity and these are the things that define me. Um, and these these characteristics are becoming more and more narrow, um, more and more under threat and more combative. Meaning being a Hong Konger means you love Hong Kong. Uh, you stand up for democratic rights, you stand up for freedoms, you stand up for uh, being able to live the Hong Kong dream. Then you have the other side, which, you know, is, let's say, pro-Beijing, if you will. And these are the one; these are the folks who want, you know, are happy to see Hong Kong being more integrated into China. They, they do believe that, you know, Hong Kong uh, was, is, and always will be part of China, and it's better for the country as, as a whole. So these are the more patriotic people. And what you see, what I've seen now when I was in Hong Kong is this... Um, sociotropic threat is what people call it. It's when people identify their identity and their politics with the us versus them mentality. And that is really, really clear. That became very clear to me in Hong Kong, even within, um, to a, to an extent within my family as well, meaning people don't really want to talk about politics, fear of saying you are this and I'm that. And we just can't talk openly because it creates a lot of tension and that is something that um, never really happened uh, in Hong Kong in the past. You have differences in politics, but not to the extent that people cannot sit down and have a meal together. And I think that is something that put China aside. At the end, when all of this dust has settled, I think Hong Kong people will still have to real like deal with the aftermath of realizing, wow, okay, maybe the dust has settled and life goes on, but wow, mom, do you really think like this? Or dad, do you really think like this? Or how can I be so different from my siblings or my friends? And I think the only other place I've seen something similar to this is this kind of partisan politics that you see in the US today. And we see what it does to the US and uh, it'd be, you know, massive heartache to see that in Hong Kong. That's interesting because, um, you know, taking it back to what you said um, earlier about how this movement is organized and, and the role that um, the internet, social media, online communication has played, is playing 
in the way that they mobilize and how they reach out, how they reach out beyond Hong Kong to other countries. Um, you know, they've been using crowdfunding to run ad campaigns and all of these different methods. At the same time, we've been seeing China investing quite a lot of effort into trying to discredit some parts of the movement or the entire movement as rioters and, you know, people who are just trying to um, to create chaos. And so it seems to me that a lot of this has been playing out online, actually. And with, you know, Twitter, you know, identifying disinformation campaigns clearly run and then tracing it back to Beijing. And that might also be a generational rift, right? So, um, you know, looking at the protest movement now as compared to 16 weeks ago, would you say that the chances are now higher for them to become discredited by what they're doing? Or are they, you know, what to what extent are they peaceful? To what extent... Are they, you know, sticking to what their demands are and to what extent are they, you know, um, venturing from that path and, you know, even tr maybe giving people a case to say that that's not something that they find constructive? What I found really interesting, um, having spent almost two weeks in Hong Kong and observing this daily is, on the one hand, you have peaceful protesters that are organized, um, that you know, respect the police who are there to also make sure that everything is, you know, safe and secure. Um, they follow the path that they're meant to follow along these protest routes. And at the end of the day, you know, they're out there, they're marching and, you know, mission accomplished, everything is fine. At the same time, you have these fringe movements that are really out there to cause problem, to cause chaos um, and to fight against the police. Um, and then there's this third weird movement that I still have to find, you know, wrap my head around. And you hear this term being used. Uh, if you if you speak Cantonese on the news, you'd hear people screaming at the back, uh, which basically translates to triads, triads. And so it's a really chaotic, mixed up picture. You have people who are law abiding citizens who go, you know, protest. You have people who end up rioting. And then you have people screaming triads, triads, meaning there are all these different elements that are mixed up into, you know, whatever is happening on the streets. And it's really hard to tell where this is going to end up because, you know, you have turf wars, you have people fighting for, uh, you know, their freedoms. And then you have people who are just out there to fight the police because they need a, a, a way to take that pressure and like off themselves and like release the valve and just boom, you know, like make things chaotic on the street. And then what I heard, which really also blew my mind is all these conspiracy theories of who is supporting who and where are funds coming from and how it may be in the interest of some other, um, let's say country or, or um, sovereign power within that region to fund uh, these protest movements in Hong Kong because they want to make sure that China's kept busy with Hong Kong and uh, keep their eyes off the ball off of this, I'm not going to name territory, which has protection by the US, right? Or that foreign powers are there to to undermine China uh, by showing how, you know, at the end of the day, freedom still has, uh, and, and democratic rights still have a place uh in the region. So they have to help Hong Kongers uh, fight this fight. So to... I don't have a clear-cut answer. I don't know uh, if this is going to uh, you know, go on indefinitely. I don't think it will. How long will it last? No one knows. But what does make this very different is, as you said at the top of the question, the use of social media, the difficulty in the authorities to pinpoint 
um, you know, who is initiating this, uh, who is masterminding when to meet, where to meet, how to meet, what to bring, uh, etc., 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 and uh, and that's that's difficult, and that's a new element uh, of this, and that's something that we haven't seen. Um, in Hong Kong in the past, even during the umbrella uh, movement, this what we see now is is at a whole different level. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you can see it as a as a um, as a strength to to be this um, sort of um, decentralized, not have a central leader. As you said, it's hard to pinpoint. Um, at the same time, it strikes me as um, as a downside when it comes to you know making sure that you know when you've had success. So the question of how long will this continue? And to me, what really um, what really strikes me as is the question, when will they see a success in, in, in what they are actually fighting for? And who will make that call, right? Who will make that decision? Uh, who will come out and say, this is what we want and now we feel like we've taken a step. At, uh, at the same time, you know, um, there might be different interests at stake. So. Um, it seems it seems to me unclear whether this sort of leaderlessness and decentralization is a strength in the long run, or something that might actually um, impede impede some sort of progress. In Hong yeah, Kong. I think that that's that's a really good observation. The the five demands that I told you that the current protesters have, right, that when they raise their five fingers, most of them relate to the current movement, right? The whole idea of extradition bill should be you know, swiped away for good, that's done. But then to ask Harry Lamb to step down or inquiry into police brutality, releasing the prisoners who, who you know, were caught up from, uh, from the protests, and then for greater democratic freedoms. All of these are very much connected to what's happening here and now. But if you look at the bigger picture, right, and the bigger picture, as I mentioned earlier, was having a future. Hong Kong was known as a city with where people were proud to say I'm a Hong Konger because there are freedoms. Um, there is the opportunity to live the Hong Kong dream, meaning you can work hard and be prosperous and, and have a better life. I think that is the bigger picture. What's making this dream very difficult now is skyrocketing housing prices, people not getting jobs that they want, not being able to have a certain lifestyle that is you know equal to, if not better, than the generation before them the generation that worked their butts off to, you know, give their children a better life. I think Hong Kong really needs to answer these questions. And, and until we get these fundamentals fixed, that people who are educated have a fair chance to get a good job, um, that people are able to become more independent of their parents and live or afford a house and have the opportunity or the fighting chance to have a better life, you will see this kind of protest stuff coming back again and again and again. It might not, you know, we had the umbrella revolution. Now we have this, this, um, you know, extradition bill riots. Tomorrow it'll be something else. But I think the, this, the, 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 the fire that will ignite the causes, the reasons for this um, will remain the same if they aren't uh, addressed. So maybe, you know, looking beyond Hong Kong and China, um, there's been um, a couple of the, um, not leaders, because as you said, might be too much to say, but some of the public faces, some of the spokespeople, I would say maybe of this movement, have traveled to several countries, somewhere in Germany recently, and in other countries, and have tried to 
raise the sort of profile of the movement to bring attention to the plight of Hong Kong and what's going on, you know, by giving talks. And I mentioned this ad campaign recently. So there's clearly this sort of drive to to make sure that the narrative that's being told about what's going on is not going to be the one that um, Beijing necessarily wants to push. But there is, you know, there's also this sort of level of the fight going on about which narrative will prevail. What do you think is, what do other countries um, have at stake in this? Do they have anything at stake? If so, who do you see as the major players in in the moment? Um, and what can we expect to happen in terms of sort of the international um, component of this conflict? Yeah, I mean, some of the faces that you're talking about, for example, most recently, Joshua Wong, who was, you know, the face of the Umbrella Revolution. He's like 22 years old, 23 years old, young, uh, 23 years young, let's put it that way, who was in Germany recently, and he met with our foreign minister, uh, Mr. Heiko Maas. Uh, and as you said, he tried to raise the profile of what's happening in Hong Kong. And um, also in the U.S., he's traveled there in the past. And uh, long story short, government representatives say the same thing when it comes to this movement, you know, that they support people's peaceful movement towards, you know, securing um, freedoms and, and democratic rights and so on and so forth. But everyone has been very, very calculating and careful not to step on Beijing's toes. And the reason is very simple. Money makes the world turn, Right. People, countries have business ties, economic ties with China, and no one really wants to risk these. Let's just be honest. Uh, let's put it bluntly. That's just how it is. Um, at the same time, um, these countries do see the fact that uh, Hong Kongers are fighting for freedoms that these countries, you know, whether it's Germany or the UK or the US, you know, they, they take it as, as this part, uh, an essential part of their political and cultural fabric, uh, democratic freedoms and, and rights and so on and so forth. Um, and I think if you ask me, um, these are the countries and also citizens of these countries living in Hong Kong uh, are the ones who will feel the brunt of this. You know, I have friends who are from Germany, from the US, from the UK, who live in Hong Kong. People I've studied with are saying more and more that they feel more nervous about their future or the future of their children because um, they don't know whether all of a sudden they may be associated with this movement or that movement and and they get plucked off the street and imprisoned. Um, but also economically, I think uh, Western countries who are who have major investments, whether it's capital inflow or outflow uh, out of China via Hong Kong, will feel the pressure. Um, and, and, you know, as you said, there were these uh, ad campaigns from HSBC Bank or Standard Chartered that basically took out center page of major newspapers in Hong Kong um, saying that what's happening, what these rioters are doing is completely wrong. And uh, they are saying it's bad for business. And if it's bad for business, it's bad for Hong Kong uh, and Hong Kong people because it is a financial hub. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, that's that's what's at stake. Uh, there's economic there's the economic element of it, but there's also our whole political narrative of what we hold dear. Um, and at the moment, I don't see too much movement from Western uh, liberal democratic countries really backing uh, Hong Kong uh, protesters openly saying, "Hey, you know, for obvious reasons." Has there already been any impacts um, in terms of the economic? situation so have you spoken to any business leaders or can we say at this moment that there has already been sort of an economic fallout 
and if so what has it been uh, and to what to what extent is it going to you know continue worse than um yeah for sure i mean just an anecdote when i flew out from um berlin to hong kong uh, i asked a couple of ticket counters just out of curiosity um you know how packed is the flight um and to my surprise really uh, it was between 65 to 70% full whereas it would have been much fuller um uh, in the past uh flying mm -hmm. in september right it's a, it's a good time to to fly to hong kong any time is a good time to fly to hong kong um and then i had a relative of mine who was flying out of san francisco and her flight was 40% full which is crazy because it's a west coast with a massive you know asian population that travels back and forth and it was only 40% full tourist industry has dropped also by 40% in hong kong since um since june uh, and the biggest fall was in august and other businesses are still very careful no one's making a major move at the moment because they really want to play it out to see you know what's happening in hong kong but what you do see is a slow trickling effect of capital outflow out of hong kong nothing major but it is happening what you do see is as i said you know banks uh, taking out center pages of major newspapers uh, lambasting the the protest movements mtr for example which is the mass transit railway um, that provides uh, it's like trains uh, system they have also closed down their services once um, the chinese government has accused them of supporting the protesters because the protesters ride on the street then they run down underground take the the subway and they run off home and the global times which is you know the news mouthpiece of the prc so to speak um accused the mtr of supporting them and what did the mtr do they close down business so that they are they don't they're not seen as supporting cathay pacific is a major uh, example some of the cathay pacific the airlines out of hong kong some of cathay pacific's um employees were were um caught supporting the pro-democracy uh, movement uh, and also messaging on social media their support and what happened they were fired um, and this was seen as you know and this was after china also applied pressure on, on the leadership of cathay pacific so all of these movements are these moves if you will are seen as pressure uh, coming down from Beijing, um, and that is also what's affecting business. So obviously, then the main question is, how will this continue? So what's your, you know, from speaking to people, from having been to the city now recently, from your observations, what what do you think? What do you expect to happen? What's going to be um, sort of the momentum in the coming weeks, um, and what is going to be, if any, the significance of this this anniversary tomorrow? And what should we expect looking at the protest movement? Um, and then second question would be, you know, what is the significance beyond Hong Kong, beyond what's going to happen there for similar sort of movements in other countries around the world? Yeah, tomorrow, October 1st, 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China is going to be a major deal in China for sure, of course. Um, I think we can expect safely that there will be a major showdown in Hong Kong. Uh, police have already, um, you know, been practicing 
um, suppression formations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's that's uh, not a surprise. This past weekend, um, there were already riots uh, gearing up towards uh, October first. So I think that there will be there will be something happening. So stay tuned. I don't know exactly what, but uh, rest assured, Hong Kong people won't go down without a fight. Uh, that's just the kind of characteristic of Hong Kong people, uh, if you will. To answer your question about the uh, significance of this and how long this will last, no one really knows. Um, I, I definitely cannot tell you. I think so long as the major questions, as I mentioned earlier, the major questions about um, job opportunities, better opportunities for the future, housing, these kind of socioeconomic questions are not answered, um, you will continue seeing a different form of uprising in Hong Kong. And this, of course, is accelerated by the fact that, you know, every year more and more people from mainland China are coming to Hong Kong and it creates this rift between who sees themselves as Hong Konger, the us, versus who is labeled the mainlander Chinese, them. Um, and then finally, the significance of this beyond Hong Kong. Uh, look, I, I personally think there is a one country, two systems policy that was agreed upon between the United Kingdom and the People's Republic of China. And China has been interpreting, I'm using quotation marks with my hands for our listeners, they have been interpreting this agreement as China sees fit. I think there are parties to this agreement, the UK primarily, uh, that need to pull their weight. Uh, yes, we're in the midst of Brexit, we're in the midst of a whole bunch of other stuff in the UK, um, but it is that government's responsibility to see that the agreement that they also signed off to uh, is being respected. And I say this because Hong Kong is a test case for what international agreements mean uh, with China. And if China cannot live up to its part of this deal, this international agreement, where on earth are we going to trust China to, you know, if we get into another deal with them, uh, or we meaning any international country? And so if China doesn't uphold its part of this agreement until 2047, um, where else can we trust uh, the Chinese government to uphold their part of the deal? And if they can interpret a deal as they see fit, does that not then allow other parties entering an agreement with China to also then interpret the agreement as they see fit. So I think that's, that's, that's going to be um, the struggle. It's a, it's a matter of trust. And without trust and without cooperation, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see how this is going to work out well for anybody. And do you see that the movement itself and the way it's been sort of operating, the successes it's had so far, um, the way it's been organizing, do you see that sort of have an effect beyond what's going on in Hong Kong um, on other movements, similar movements in other countries? Or is it too early to tell? Well, I don't want to become a best practice <laughs> consultant on, on, on uh, protest movements. <laughs> um, no, but as I said before, there are elements that are different from traditional kind of if you want to use the word traditional uh, protest movements in the street, whether it's, you know, uh, Uh, the Arab Spring movement, whether it's um, the kind of 99% movement in the US or elsewhere, I think what we see very differently is the use of social media, is the use of how uh, information is being spread. It is the decentralized movement uh, of, of these kind of uh, protests. 
where you don't know who the the leader is. It is the fact that these are very well-funded resource movements. Um, And I think there is an article somewhere online um, by a major newspaper company. I don't remember off the top of my head which one. But they were saying, what can other movements learn from what's happening in Hong Kong? And I think all of these things that I just mentioned tick the boxes. Um, And it's going to be different. uh, Technology plays a massive, massive um, role in how people organize, how people mobilize, how people um, get sufficient uh, resources to supply. The supply chain is also changed uh, with the use of technology. So I think there are lessons to be learned from how uh, this movement is, you know, unfolding in Hong Kong. Um, but I think I'll leave it at that. I don't, <laughs> I can't become a consultant on this. So that was a lot of information. Um, we'll keep an eye on this, obviously. Uh, we might return in a couple of weeks to do another check-in. Um, for now, I think it's worth uh, waiting and seeing what happens on October 1st. And um, Joel Santu, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Global Futures was presented by me, Katarina Nachbar and produced by Sonja Sugrobova from the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. Our guest today was Joel Santu. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, interviews, opinion pieces, and more podcasts, visit ggfutures.net slash analysis.